Okay, here we go. Let's get to it. The Caves of Androzani. Oh, I can't wait. Hello, everyone. This is Eric Yuzwa of the Summons from Gallifrey podcast. This is a podcast that focuses on the classic stories of the British science fiction television series Doctor Who. And in this episode, we are going to be covering the magical, the legendary Caves of Androzani. The Caves of Androzani, I'm sorry. So for a little bit of behind-the-scenes information, this is now season 21, and this is Peter Davison's final season. After two short seasons of the show, it feels like two short seasons. When he took the role as the Doctor, he was given some advice by John Pertwee to make sure to keep his length short to avoid being typecast as the Time Lord. So he originally communicated to John Nathan Turner that he only wanted to do two seasons. Between seasons 19 and 21, the show really experienced some highs and lows. In the same season as Castrovalva was a story called Earthshock, which was not only a special that reintroduced the Cybermen after a six-year absence to the show, but in a shocking twist finale, we see Adric losing his life while trying to avert a disaster to the planet Earth. In the end credits for that episode, there's even just total silence instead of the regular end credit music, with a focus on Adric's broken badge of mathematical excellence while the credits are scrolling by. It's really worth seeing if you haven't yet experienced it. It's probably a quick Google on YouTube. After Adric dies, a robotic companion named Chameleon joins the crew for some reason that the show never really explained very well, uh, but it was a neat gimmick and who we barely see for over a year. The concept of Chameleon was interesting, but it seems the show really didn't learn the right lessons from what it went through with K-9, where mechanical props just cause huge difficulties for the show to deal with and end up soaking a lot of extra time during production. Nyssa then leaves the crew to help a people deal with the deadly space plague, and the doctor then picks up a 20-year-old schoolboy played by a 30-year-old actor named Turlow, who found himself marooned on Earth. I, I don't know if he's, he was actually 30 when he was cast, but he definitely looks older than 20. Season 20 was also the 20th anniversary of the program, so Jonathan Turner put together a wonderful special called The Five Doctors, which pulled together elements from former doctors, companions, and even enemies into a terrific Gallifreyan lore-building adventure. Soon after that, Tegan Javanka also leaves, which officially closes the book on the original TARDIS trio of Adric, Tegan, and Nyssa, which some fans view as one of the trademarks of the Davison era. Turlow then leaves the crew to rejoin his people, and the Doctor picks up an American companion named Perpigillian Brown, or Perry for short. So recall if you remember, back in Castrovalva, the viewer numbers were in the double digits. But for most of season 21, average viewer numbers were now down in the 5, 6, or 7 million range. And for kind of a good reason. Most of the stories during season 21 were not the greatest. There were some various experiments from John Nathan Turner with episode and story structures, which only contributed to the show's problems in the ratings, I think. JNT even tinkered with the regeneration format, and in A Change from Previous Doctors, Davison's regeneration story is not the final one of the season, with the sixth Doctor, played by Colin Baker, being introduced in his first story. We'll be covering that in our next episode of this podcast. But in the middle of this maelstorm, we arrive at Peter Davison's final adventure, The Caves of Androzani. Calling this story a diamond in the rough is an understatement. Before we even get started, like I've admitted before, it's no secret that this story is a full five-star rating for me, which really makes it stand out from the rest of this season, and is in fact probably my favorite Doctor Who story, period. It's written by Robert Holmes, uh, and remember that Robert Holmes wrote The Spearhead from Space, which was the first story for John Pertwee's Doctor. Since that story, he left the show to pursue other show opportunities, including another BBC science fiction show called Blake Seven. 
Around season 20, Holmes was contacted by script editor Eric Sayward and John Nathan Turner to help out with the Five Doctor Anniversary special. After some disagreements over the direction of the special, Sayward ended up taking over the reins of writing the show, but he and Holmes stayed in close touch. Finally, Eric was able to convince him to come back to write The Caves of Androzani. Originally going under a working title of Chain Reaction, okay, I don't see it yet, uh, Holmes approached this story from a viewpoint of Peter Davidson's doctor really getting off easy in all of his stories. So he wanted to, quote, put him through hell, end quote. Directed by Graham Harper. With that lengthy intro out of the way, let's get started on the synopsis. Okay, so in episode one, we start with a shot in space of two planets, which are at the heart of the story, Androzani Major and Androzani Minor. We zoom in on Minor as the TARDIS lands, and it's definitely a barren wasteland. The Doctor and Perry exit the TARDIS to a wander around, and we see quite a few environmental visuals with the idea of doubles. For example, there's a great effect of two mountains in the background. In the foreground, we see two small pools with some kind of vehicle track going between them. Perry and the Doctor come across these tracks, which the Doctor theorizes was left from a shuttle from the twin planet of Androzani Major. The tracks lead off into some nearby caves. The Doctor wants to take a closer look with the hesitant Perry running after him. As they get closer, the Doctor realizes that the caves are actually blowholes. The core of the planet is composed of primeval mud, so whenever the planet swings closer to Androzani Major, the gravitational forces cause the mud to burst out. And I should say super hot mud. When they arrive in the caves, the doctor notices how smooth the walls are, which, which make them fairly slippery. As if on cue, Perry slips over the edge of a rock, and for a minute we can see her bounce upwards a bit from the trampoline she had to fall on. It's kind of funny. <laughs> you hear her scream, and then her head kind of goes boing. Anyway, the doctor runs over to find Perry trapped in some kind of large sticky ball. Imagine a pod full of spider webs, maybe? The doctor uses his hands to help brush it off her legs, and they move on as Perry complains a bit about a stinging sensation in her legs. In a small cave at the end of their trail, we've got a group of gunrunners sitting around waiting to deliver a cache of weapons that they brought. In other words, this was the shipment that the doctor noticed the tracks of, uh, which led them into these caves. A couple of them are playing with some dice with two gunrunners named Stotz and Krelper sitting on some crates nearby. Stotz is the leader, with Krelper being his sort of dim-witted right-hand man. We don't find out their names for a little bit, but just to kind of help uh, differentiate them right now. Krelper is getting nervous as they've been waiting for three days to deliver the weapons. Stotz is a little more patient and telling him to relax. They then hear the Doctor and Perry coming, so the group of them hide nearby. They watch the Doctor and Perry arrive at the crates and see them poking around enough to figure out that they are gas weapons. The Doctor comments that there's enough of them to equip a small army. He then notices the dice on the floor and feels them, commenting that they're still warm, which means that whoever delivered these weapons are still nearby. They hear some footsteps coming, so they duck behind a real obvious crate. I mean, there really is nowhere to hide in this cave, and so they duck behind the only obvious hiding place. Some soldiers run in and immediately surround the Doctor and Perry, taking the prisoner. We cut to a General Chelak in his headquarters, which kind of looks like a metallic mobile trailer in one of the caves. Uh, his right-hand man, Major Salatine, reports the capture of some gunrunners to the general, who is ecstatic until he hears the news of gas weapons. He wants those gas weapons right away before they look around for any other gunrunners. The general isn't crazy about the gas suits that the army has, 
but he orders Salatine to get them checked out in case they're needed. Salatine informs him that he's already taken the precaution to have that done. The general makes a joke about Salatine always being one step ahead of him, which will come in later. Dun dun dun. Graham Harper really creates an effective visual composition in a lot of these mobile HQ scenes between the general and the major. In order to solve the problem, I think, of a tiny set piece, Harper puts the camera from a downwards angle looking up the general, as if it were one of the data screens that the general would be studying his operations from. It's a pretty cool effect. And it, it makes for an interesting angle when uh, looking or when viewing the dialogue from these two men. We then cut over to Andrazani Major to introduce us to Trau Morgus. Trau is a title within the society, apparently. Um, it maybe picture Trau Morgus as like an elite version of Elon Musk. Morgus is the head of the largest conglomerate on the planet, who is paying for the majority of the cost of operations of the military on Andrazani Minor, but we find out that the conglomerate also owns the planet of Andrazani Minor. Morgus is calculating something on a notepad and he's getting annoyed. He buzzes in his secretary, Krau Timmin, and informs her that copper output has risen, which shouldn't be happening. Uh, she reminds him that a limiting order was sent out by the head of minerals, but Morgus thinks it's too little too late. He orders her to tell the head of minerals to start a study around closing one of their copper mines called the North Call Copper Mines. He tries to dismiss her, but she informs him that there's a message from the general that they've captured two gunrunners. Morgus wants her to get the general on the equivalent of a video call, picture like a Skype. Throughout this whole introduction scene, we're only seeing the back of Morgus's chair as he's dictating everything to Kraut Timmin. Right at the end of the scene, the chair turns around so that Morgus faces the camera to deliver his lines. In fact, a lot of Morgus's dialogue is where he's looking directly at the camera while saying some comments. Um, there's a technique in Shakespeare plays called an aside, which basically it's a way for a character to deliver a monologue to the audience within a, an existing conversation of other characters in the scene. So it's kind of like, you know, he's voicing thoughts that are going through his head. A Shakespearean way of doing a voiceover but it's really cool. It's really effective in this whole story. We then cut back to Stotts. Him and his crew are in a small tunnel overlooking the army. They're planning to attack it. Now, when I say platoon, you have to keep in mind the typical scale of a Doctor Who production. So they call this group a platoon, but it's really like five dudes. But who cares? Whatever, your imagination usually fills in the rest. Again, Graham Harper chooses some good shots here where the overall darkness of the caves just creates a real mystique in every scene. Back to the General and Celatine in the HQ. They're talking about a mysterious magma creature that has been a nuisance by eating some of the troops from the deeper levels of the caves. More on the magma creature much later, unfortunately. There's a knock on the door and the Doctor and Perry are thrown into the room. Seriously, some over-enthusiastic extras just giving him both a real rough shove. The doctor tries to throw some charm at the general, but he discovers right away that the general just has no patience for it. It's been a long campaign in the caves. He warns the doctor and Perry that under emergency regulations, he has the authority to execute them for gun running. He wants to know who their contact is back on Androzani Major and how they're communicating with Shara's Jack who we figure out is the main antagonist here. Doctor introduces both himself and Perry and tries to tell the general about the rash that is now developed on Perry's legs, but the general is not interested. Salatine informs the general that Trau Morgus is on Skype. Well, he doesn't say literal Skype, but he's on a video call. I'm gonna call it Skype. They quickly shove the Doctor and Perry into a side room that's just small enough to be a closet. Again, it's a pretty rough shove for the two of them. Remember, uh, 
remember from our intro here that Robert Holmes really wanted to put Peter Davison through hell. So we cut back to Trow Morgus. He's talking to an undercover operative, demanding that he take care of the North Call mining operation by the next day. He guides him to his private elevator so that he can leave undetected. Once the elevator door closes, he then turns to the Skype call to the general. At first, Morgus belittles the general, mocking his handling of the campaign so far, which is basically a good info dump for the audience. The war has been lasting for nearly seven months now in a stalemate with Sharazjek. In the general's first assault, the army captured the Spectrox refineries, but then Sharazjek was able to smuggle out all the Spectrox from under their noses. We'll find out what Spectrox actually is a little bit later. While Morgus and the general are arguing back and forth, they're unaware that their Skype call has been hacked by a third party. In this case, it's Sharazjek, who's watching the call from his lair. Picture a small surveillance network. He's got some monitors and some cameras spread out over all the caves, including watching the, the army HQ. Back on the Skype call, Morgus demands that the general execute the Doctor and Perry, thinking them gunrunners, then hangs up, cutting off a protesting general. Meanwhile, in a nearby side cavern, Stotts and his little squad of gunrunners decide to ambush the military patrol who are trying to carry the containers of gas weapons back to their base. Stotts and his group fire a bunch of gas grenades which kill the soldiers, and then they rush to dump all the weapon containers into a nearby cavern. I mean, it doesn't look very deep, but of course the idea is that it's secluded enough that the army wouldn't be able to recover them. I don't know, it's a little bit... It looks kind of a little bit weird, but the general idea is that they're destroying all the weapons. Back in the army HQ, the doctor is trying to appeal to the general by pointing out that he's taking orders from a civilian. The general does agree with the doctor, but Morgus is just too powerful. He has connections all the way up to the Presidium in his pocket. Even if the general could make a case, nobody with any substantial power would hear it. Major Celatine bursts into the room with a report of the nearby soldiers under gas attack. The general orders the doctor and Perry to be prepped for execution while he takes a squad out to help. Celatine tells the doctor and Perry that they'll be executed under the red cloth, basically covered from head to toe in a red cloth, then the ashes of their bodies would be disposed of as the Dr. Perry request. We cut to Morgus and his secretary, Krautemin, in a real close-up shot in his private elevator. Really well done. They're standing pretty much face to face. He's basically monologuing about how great an execution will be for the image of the conglomerate. Krautemin doesn't dare roll her eyes, but you can tell that there's something there in her facial expression. They arrive at his office, and she informs him that the president is coming for a visit. Morgus tells her to prepare ten centiliters of Spectrox for the president. Back in the camp, the doctor is mulling some of the recent events over in his head. He makes a comment that there's something very funny about that major, meaning Salatine. Perry makes a comment that it didn't make her laugh. Then the doctor notes that Chalak said they were fighting android rebels. Perry just doesn't appreciate the two of them being the fall guys in this war. In a pretty vulnerable moment, the doctor makes an honest apology to Perry for their situation. Curiosity has always been his downfall. She accepts it, but assures him that she is just as responsible as he is. The doctor then notices that there's blisters all over his hands now, and Perry tells him that she is the same thing on her legs. We then finally cut to the lair of Sheriff's Jack. The story still hasn't properly introduced him yet, but it's still easier. The story still hasn't properly introduced him yet, but it's a little bit easier to describe. We don't see his face, but picture a man dressed all in black leather. We see some montage footing, uh, not footing. We see some montage footage of Jack pulling levers, punching in computer instructions, and ordering some of his androids around via a communicator. Back at the army camp, the doctor's starting to wonder what Spectrox is and why is it so valuable. 
the most valuable substance in the universe, according to Morgus. While he's pacing a little about that, Perry is looking outside their little cell and noticing that the preparation is nearly ready for their execution. As they're both looking outside, they don't notice a panel in the wall behind them open up. Back in the office of Morgus, he's handing the president a small vial of milky liquid. Basically the Spetrox. And we now hear what Spetrox is and what it's used for. It's a restorative that really prevents aging in a human. The president admits he's 84, but he doesn't look much older than 50. He admits to Morgus that the political will of the Senate is crumbling quickly. The demand for the flow of Spetrox to resume from Androzani Minor is so high that the Presidium will soon just acquiesce to the demands of Sherzjak to end the war. Morgus can't believe what he's hearing. Krautimin then interrupts the two of them to let them know that it's time for the execution, which they punch up on Skype. In the army camp, Major Salatine leads the Doctor and Perry out of their cells and in front of a small squad of soldiers. Sheriff's Jack is also watching this via some monitors in his lair, and we finally see his face for the first time as he's laughing. His face is covered in more leather, but in kind of uh, a series of black and white patterns. If you've ever seen that episode of Star Trek, the original series, let that be your last battlefield. The mask looks very reminiscent of that. Maybe I'll put a picture of that in the show notes. The President and Morgus are also watching on Skype, as Celatine is dra draping a large red cloth around both Perry and the Doctor. The general approaches the doctor and Perry, asking them for any last words. The doctor again repeats his protest, but what do you say at that point? I don't want—I don't really want to imagine what that would feel like. With the red cloths now covering both their faces, the general calls the soldiers to attention and orders them to fire. As the machine guns fire, we go to our first cliffhanger. It's a very effective cliffhanger. It's still a kid's show, so we don't see any squibs or anything, but just computer-animated machine gun effects on the Doctor and Perry as they slump over from being shot. Honestly, it, it kind of takes away from the scene. I wish they didn't have the effect at all. It would have been just as effective without any um, animation done, but whatever. You get the idea. The general dismisses the squad, and the president terminates the Skype call comments that the decision to execute the Dr. and Perry was too premature. They could have divulged some valuable information. There's some back and forth between Morgus and the President, but the gist is that Morgus has been quietly shutting down factories in the richer western side of Androzani Major, and has been building new factories on the cheaper, poorer eastern side of the planet. Without employment cards, workers on the west will be sent over to work in factories in the east. The president then points out that the same people will end up working for Morgus, except at the end of the day, it will now be for free. I guess apparently, if you're working at a work camp, you're not being paid. Both men stare at each other for a few moments before the president leaves. It's a great scene. Great delivery from both of them. Back to Shara's Jack's lair, the doctor and Perry are escorted in by some robots. There's another interesting camera angle here. Sorry, I just wanted to point it out. Shares Jack is a little bit blurry in the foreground, with the Doctor and Perry clearly visible in the background. Shares Jack mentions how much he's been looking forward to meeting the two of them, especially Perry. From here on in, for the pretty much the rest of the story, the actress playing Perry, Nicola Bryant, does a really good job of just appearing on edge and creeped out whenever she's in the presence of Shares Jack. Uh, like, it's it's in in quite a few scenes it's really even hard to watch like you can you almost feel how how grossed out she is how uncomfortable she is how terrified she is of Shara's Jack being so close to her um anyways we cut to the general who's looking at the bodies of the doctor and perry with Salatine and realizing that they're androids he briefly admires Shara's Jack's android-making skills, but mentions to Salatine that it'll ruin him if the news ever gets out. Back in Jack's lair, Shara's is trying to figure out how the Doctor and Perry ended up on Androzani Minor. 
During the conversation, the doctor attempts to talk their way out of the situation and leave back to the surface. But Jack just chuckles and tells them that they are his prisoners for the rest of their lives. Perry definitely doesn't like the sounds of that, especially when Jack puts a hand on her shoulder. Again, really creepy. She does some excellent acting. Um, I think Christopher Gable plays Shara's Jack, and who's, uh, according to uh, commentary by Nicole Bryant herself, they're, they all got along really well during the production of this. So it's definitely not a case of her really feeling any angst about uh, Christopher Gable being so close to her. Um, but she, which again highlights just how awesome an actress she really is. Back outside, Stotts and Krelper are having another discussion. Krelper and some of the guys want to leave immediately with their share of the payment owed to them according to the contract. Stotts points out that the terms stated they, that they won't get paid until they're back on Androzani Major. Krelper gets frustrated and points out that Stotts had originally promised a two-day job. Stotts feels the need to assert his control of the squad. He forces Krelper right up to the brink of a gravel cliff forcing him on his back. He pulls out a small capsule that he claims is poison and tries to force Krelper to eat it. After a few moments, he gets off of Krelper and tells him that the next time he'll do it for real. Krelper spits out the capsule and just glares at him. Back in Jack's lair, he's not around, but Perry is walking around stomping one of her legs and complains to the doctor that, they, that she's got a cramp. While she's trying to stretch, Jack wanders in, promising a visit shortly from Celatine, who will bring them food. Perry asks them why they're being kept prisoner. Jack just can't bring himself to let them go, especially Perry. He's been in the company of androids for months in this underground bunker. The doctor, and in a lot of these conversations too, the doctor keeps trying to position himself physically between Jack and Perry. So again, he kind of moves between Perry and Jack, or yeah, Perry and Jack, and tells them that while, uh, oh, blah, blah, blah. the doctor tries to sh shelter Perry, and Jack tells them that while Perry is not expendable, the doctor sure is. He then finally tells the doctor all about Spectrox, and how it preserves life within someone who's taking it, which the pieces finally click for the doctor. He tries to goad Jack a bit, telling him that it's only a matter of time before the army finds Jack and takes control. He just laughs and tells him that he knows every move they make. While walking over to his control room equipment and showing the Doctor and Perry his various cameras all over, his various hidden cameras all over the army base as well as a lot of the caves. He points out that he calculates it'll be several years before he's seriously threatened and the people of Androzani Major will not wait several years for the supply of Spectrox to resume. The Presidium will definitely be forced to agree to all of Jack's terms. He tells the Doctor and Perry that the people can have as much Spectrox as they need, provided he gets the literal head of Morgus. While he's talking, the look on the faces of the Doctor and Perry are just perfect, a mixture of shock and realization of just how unhinged Jack really is. The whole scene is so well executed, directed, and acted, everything. There's then a dissolve from this scene to Morgus in his office. Krautimin enters, reporting to Morgus that there's been an accident at the North Call copper mine. It's been completely destroyed. Tusk, tusk, how sad, he says. <laughs> it's, his delivery is perfect but he admits that it conveniently solves their problem of overproduction. He tells Crow that the rest of the workforce should stand for one minute in silence as a mark of respect, but before she can leave the office, he changes his mind and tells her that it should only be for half a minute. We then get another dissolve from the face of Morgus back to a cackling Shara's Jack, who then leaves the lair. The Doctor and Perry are definitely worried about how insane Shara's Jack is. Celatine then walks into the lair with some bowls of porridge for them. I don't think it's actual porridge, but it just kind of looks like it. At first, he's very hostile towards the Doctor and Perry because his own usefulness to Jack is now suddenly threatened. 
but the doctor suddenly lurches forward, complaining about a spasm in his arm. While Perry tries to massage his shoulder, Salatine grabs the doctor and asks if they've touched Ross Betrox. The doctor admits that they encountered a, a big, fuzzy, sticky ball on, on their journey inwards, and then Salatine starts laughing and tells him that they're in sp stage two of something called Spetrox toxemia. Stage one is rash, stage two spasms, and then finally stage three, in which there'll be paralysis of the thoracic spinal nerve. And he tells them that since Ross Spetrox is so dangerous to humans, the androids are the ones collecting it and taking it to the refinery. He then admits to the doctor that a Professor Jackage theorized a possible cure, which is the milk of a queen bat. The problem is that the androids have killed most of the bats when they started working. So if there are any bats left, they've been chased much deeper into the cave system. We then cut to Jack, who's in another part of his lair, and getting a radio signal from Stotts. Stotts demands a meeting for payment of the gas weapons. Jack counters that since nothing was actually delivered, he owes Stotts nothing. Stotts then returns that if, they'd not, if they're not paid, they'll refuse any future delivery, not even a single bullet. Back in the other room, Salatine tells the doctor that they have about two days left to live. The doctor wants to leave immediately, but Salatine warns him that there's an armed android permanently outside. The androids are all programmed to kill humans on sight. He tells them that even Jack wears some kind of belt plague to protect him from his androids. The doctor then starts theorizing that perhaps these belt plates emit some kind of low-frequency signal that helps identify the wearer as friendly. Jack quietly walks in behind the doctor hearing all this, and then realizes just how much the doctor understands of android engineering. He starts to boast to the doctor how perfect his replica of Salatine is, who has infiltrated the Army HQ. The doctor tries to warn him that there's no such thing as perfect. After staring down the doctor for a few moments, Jack mentions that he's leaving to deal with his armed suppliers. As he's walking away, Perry asks the doctor why Jack is always wearing his hood. Again, upcoming to a really creepy scene, she freezes when she hears Jack stop behind her repeating the question back to her. She runs to the doctor for some support while Jack comes back into the room, fighting to keep his rage under control. He tells them that he and Morgus had entered a partnership. Jack would build the androids and refinery on Androzani Minor. Since Morgus owed the planet, they would then split the profits of the Spetrox 50-50. The operation was working fine for a while, but then describes that Morgus double-crossed Shara's Jack, leaving him dead when a mud burst suddenly got him. He only barely managed to survive while crawling into a nearby safe chamber. His flesh was burning. He only managed to survive by hanging on to getting revenge on Morgus. Jack then exits the lair, leaving the doctor and Perry speechless for a few moments. Perry then finally speaks up, asking why Jack blames Morgus. From the other room, Salatine pipes up. He's heard this story 50 times. Morgus supplied Jack with faulty detection instruments, hoping that a mud burst would catch Jack by surprise. The doctor then resolves that they have to leave immediately, and moves to take a look outside the metal door of the lair. We cut to Stotts and his men sprinting to finally make it to Jack's meeting place. They start negotiating back and forth, as the original price agreed to was 5 kilos of Spectrox. Eventually, Stotts realizes that he doesn't have enough leverage, and he accepts two kilos from Jack. Jack tells him that he'll be back in 20 minutes with his Spetrox. After he leaves, Krelper gets in Stotts' face, complaining about the two kilos. But Stotts tells him to shut up, and says that the refinery is somewhere within 10 minutes of their location. When Krelper mentions Jack's androids, Stotts points to their belt buckles and they start to smile, convinced that Jack has screwed up this time. They take off in the direction of Jack. Meanwhile, the doctor comes up with a theory that the androids are only scanning for human physiology. Since he's a Time Lord with two hearts, remember, then maybe the android won't know what to do. 
It's a definite gamble, but given that they have no time, no time to lose, the doctor goes for it. He flings open the door and pauses for a few moments while the android on guard scans the doctor. Realizing that the android is indeed confused, he walks up behind it and shuts it off. He finds a nearby belt plate and gives it to Perry for safety. The three of them leave with the doctor aiming to get some oxygen canisters from the TARDIS. And then, who, and then he'll head down to find some queen bats. As they're heading down one of the caves, another android spots them and starts firing, presumably because Perry had a belt buckle but not Salatine. The doctor trips and knocks himself out on a nearby rock. Salatine pulls Perry in front of him and uses her as a shield while firing back at the android, killing it. A few moments later, the doctor regains consciousness and starts shouting for Perry and Salatine, who doesn't re respond back. Salatine is holding Perry behind another rock, covering her mouth. Meanwhile, Jack comes back to the lair, only to find that the doctor, Perry, and Salatine are gone. He really only cares about Perry, though. He's convinced that someone has kidnapped her from Jack. The doctor is wandering through another cave tunnel when he hears footsteps approaching. He hides behind a rock just as Stotts, Krelper, and the gang come into the cave looking for Jack. Suddenly coming up behind Stotts and his men is one of the cave monsters that I briefly mentioned back in episode 1. It grabs one of the men while the others start firing their guns at it. Too much light really spoils the effect here of the cave monster. It's just a man in a monster suit. It really does kind of look blah. You know, and it really reminds me of, if you've ever seen the Friends episode, of Ross wearing the armadillo costume. Kind of picture that when you see this. While Stotts and the others are firing at it, the creature detects the doctor trying to hide nearby, and he moves towards him. And that is the cliffhanger of episode two. Episode three. The creature turns back towards Stotts and his men, killing one of them while the rest escape. The creature is pretty much immune to bullets. Back in the army HQ, Salatine pull, pulls Perry through the door to report to the general. He confirms that Perry is the re real deal, and also informs the general that he himself has been a prisoner for months. The not Salatine that's been at the base has been an android all this time. The general is totally floored, realizing how blind he's been. Back in the caves, Stotts and the remaining crew come face to face with Jack, who's waiting for them just outside his lair. Jack chastises them for pursuing their own greed. While they're talking, they hear a little noise nearby, and Jack spots the doctor, who then comes down to greet Shara's Jack. The doctor's not really hiding. I mean, it's easy to hear people talking. I mean, he avoided, whenever he heard footsteps, he was able to hide behind a rock. So, I don't know, he could have stayed hidden for a little while longer, but whatever. Back in the army HQ, the general is realizing just how much information has been fed directly to Jack without the general being aware. He wants to confront the not-Salatine android, but the real Salatine comes up with a plan to feed the android disinformation. He figures he can find his way back to Jack's lair, and he'll take a squad. Meanwhile, they'll tell the not-Salatine android that they'll be attacking some bogus coordinates. Salatine figures that so long as Jack doesn't discover they've escaped, which he already has, then they'll believe anything not Salatine tells him. The general loves the plan. Back outside of Jack's lair, the android is hang, handing over some Spetrox to Stotz's men, while Jack is slapping the doctor on to, fig, to find out where Perry is. He commands two of his androids to take, each take a, an arm of the doctor to start pulling. The doctor, of course, doesn't last long and reveals that he doesn't know where she is, but she's with Celatine. Jack stops the interrogation and retreats into his lair, intent on recapturing Perry. Stotts grabs the doctor to bring him back with them to Androzani Major. He figures that the doctor is a spy, some kind of government snoop. Back at the army HQ, the OG Salatine is giving Perry some medicine to tide her over. She regains consciousness and briefly moans a bit before Salatine covers her mouth to be quiet. In the next room, not Salatine is with the general going over the attack plan to, to the bogus coordinates, 
but turns his head slightly towards the room where Perry and Salatine are hiding. The general dismisses him and he leaves. The general enters the back room and checks on Perry, who's definitely looking pretty ill. He's convinced that she's guilty, but agrees to another injection by Salatine to keep her stamina up. They really only care about keeping her mobile, aka alive, long enough to bring her in the assault against Jack's lair. Meanwhile, Stotz and his men are nearly back at the surface of the caves. The doctor is stumbling now and falling most of the way as he reveals to Stotz that he's suffering from Spetrox toxemia. Krupper grabs his arm and forces the doctor to stay with him to meet their ship. Back in the army base, Salatine hands over the belt plate to the general, explaining that it emits some kind of frequency that the androids recognize as friendly. The general wants to get it over to some engineers to make some copies, but plans on sending away not Salatine first. Salatine warns him that he ha it has to sound believable, since Jack will instantly know what not Salatine knows. Salatine then suggests making a call to Morgus, and telling him that they're going to attack Jack's lair, since the line is tapped, Jack will believe it. Again the general realizes just how much Jack has known all along, and vows to drag his body through every street on Androzani Major as a trophy. Back on Stotz's ship, they finish taking off. The doctor is tied up behind the pilot's chair, as Stotz sends everyone away while he calls their boss. He puts a blindfold on the doctor and contacts the boss. Who turns out to be, any guesses? Anyone? Anyone? Morgus! Stotz spins the story quite a bit and finally tells Morgus that he's negotiated two kilos of Spetrox for the undelivered gas weapons, but then comes up with a total lie that Jack agreed to eight kilos on the next shipment, given how desperate he is for more weapons. He gives Morgus a breadcrumb that he might know where the Spetrox refinery is. Morgus is very interested, but then spots the doctor standing behind Stotz, and he orders Stotz to remove the blindfold. The doctor greets Morgus, recognizing him by his voice. This freaks out Morgus, and he turns to the camera convinced that the execution of the doctor was a hoax, put together by the general. He then makes a theory that the only, possible, the only possibility is that the president was behind everything, and told the general to fake the execution. He orders Stotz to change his course and stay in orbit around Androzani Minor while he figures out a new plan, then terminates the Skype call. Stotz is not happy, but really he only has himself to blame. I mean, he's the one who grabbed the doctor. He could have just left him back in the cave. He leaves to join the others while the doctor starts working on the handcuffs that are bound to a radiator grill behind him. He's, he's wearing like some kind of metal handcuffs uh, tied to like a grill. Back on the Army HQ, the general meets with Not Salatine and gives him a phony recon mission to scout for Jex's lair. Not Salatine leaves the camp with some troops, and while they're walking through some of the caves, he hangs back from the group and meets with Sheriff's Jack. He informs Jack that Perry and Salatine are back at the army base. Jack reasons that since Not Salatine is now off the base, the general will be moving around, leaving Perry alone. Meanwhile, the general and Morgus are on another Skype call. The general is informing Morgus that he's moving towards Jack's refinery, but it will take him six hours to get into position. Morgus insists on being the one to inform the Presidium of this news, then hangs up on the General. Back on the ship, the Doctor finally frees the cuffs from the tiny metal clamp holding him to the grill. His hands are still cuffed, but he quickly moves towards the chair. And there's some kind of... I don't know how to describe it. There's some kind of uh, small energy beam near the controls of the ship. It's some kind of... Uh, I don't know, dilithium crystal chamber? I don't know what it is. Um, basically, it's a laser that the doctor can use to burn away the handcuffs. He lowers the shield around this thing and um, turns around so that the, hand, the, the handcuff chain gets burnt away by this laser. But not before uh, hurting himself. Again, in this whole story, Peter Davison is supposed to go through hell, so he even burns himself here. Back in the army base, a near-unconscious Perry is slumping against the wall, 
in that back room when Jack himself approaches her and uses the old chloroform rag over Perry's mouth trick to knock her out. He carries her back to his lair. With the handcuffs off, the doctor then sits in the pilot seat and disables the autopilot, intending on taking the ship back to Androzani Minor. He makes sure that the cabin door is locked. Back in Morgus's office, Morgus reveals to the president that there's going to be an assassination attempt on his life. The president is shocked at the news. Morgus confronts the president by telling him that he'll hunt down the perpetrators and take care of them, not confronts. Morgus comforts the president by telling him that he'll hunt down the perpetrators and take care of them. While they're talking, he's gently leading the president to use the door to his private elevator. He tells the president to take it down to his car to avoid being seen. The president thanks him while the elevator door opens. Morgus then gives him a shove, sending him screaming down the elevator shaft. There was no elevator. Morgus then calls in Crouchman to report the president's death. He then tells her to inform the Presidium that he himself is going to Androzani Minor as chairman of the conglomerate to negotiate an end to the war of Sherizjek. Prow tells him that the world will be forever in his debt, which causes him to give a slight smile. Before she leaves the office, he tells her to have the elevator maintenance engineer killed. Back in Jex's lair, Jack watches the camera as the general hands out new belt plates to all the army soldiers. Jack adjusts some controls and changes the frequency number that the androids recognize. He then grabs a vial of some liquid and helps Perry drink it down. It seems to help reverse what Perry is going through. Maybe it's a tiny amount of the queen bat milk. So it's enough to sort of revive her for a few moments, but not enough to kind of cure anything. He apologizes for drugging her. She asks him if he's seen the doctor, and Jack tells her that he's gone to Androzani Major. That the gunrunners he was forced to deal with were convinced that he was a spy and took him. She refuses to believe that he's left her, but then Jack starts raving about how he's forced to deal with the lowliest scum of civilization just to survive. He then spins out of control, blaming Morgus again for what's going on. Again, this interaction is terrifying for Perry. She's barely able to talk to Jack without shivering in fear. He gently touches her hair, which just completely reviles her. And us. I mean, it looks very uncomfortable just watching it. The General and Celatine finally come back to the room to find Perry gone. They're pretty much convinced that even though she's not there anymore, she's likely dead. In some side cave. Perry tells Jack that the soldiers have their own belt plates now. Jack informs her that he's changed the recognition code and chuckles that the general is in for a big shock. Back on the ship, there's a lot more rumbling as the ship gets closer to Androzani Minor. Stotts and the others finally feel that something is wrong and are yelling through the locked, door, the locked cabin door at the doctor. Krelper runs to get, Krelper runs to get some cutting gear, while Stotts tries to reason with the doctor to distract him. The doctor warns them that they'll be crashing soon. Grelper comes back and starts cutting a hole in the cabin door. The ship is getting closer and closer to the planet. Finally, Krelper finishes and Stotts kicks in the hole, threatening to shoot the doctor. He gives him to the count of three to turn the ship around or he'll shoot. While he starts counting down, the doctor starts to babble that everything is his fault and he owes it to help Perry because he got her into this mess. The engine sound is reaching a really high pitch while all this is going on. Just as Stotts, basically to give you the, the impression that the ship is getting closer and closer to the planet. I don't think it. that's what happens in real life, but whatever. Just as Stotts gets to three, the ship reaches the planet. And it's our cliffhanger for episode three. It's an amazing cliffhanger. If you can, Google it on YouTube. It comes up. It, it's like a five, five or six minute segment. And it's really well done, again. Okay, heading into episode four, the final episode of Peter Davison as the fifth doctor. The ship crash lands, sending everyone flying. In the confusion, the doctor unbuckles from the pilot chair and stumbles out of the ship. Stotts and the others regain consciousness and head after the doctor. The doctor can barely run, but manages to keep going while Krelper and one other are shooting after him. 
There's a chase scene here through some sand dunes on Androzani Minor. Really decent, I think. Really well done. Meanwhile in space, Morgus's ship is approaching and Skyping with Stotts. He chastises Stotts for disobeying his orders and tells him that he's about to land, and for Stotts to meet him. He then hangs up. Stotts realizes that things must be pretty bad if Morgus is coming. Meanwhile, Celatine, the general and the platoon, are slowly making their way through the caves towards Jek's lair. An android suddenly appears, and the platoon takes cover. Celatine smiles and just stands where he is, telling everyone to keep moving, until suddenly the android opens fire, killing Celatine instantly. A firefight breaks out with the rest of the platoon, killing the android. The general then orders the rest of the men forwards. Back to the doctor's chase sequence. He's running through more sand dunes. And the shots that the director uses here are really effective. It's a really great chase sequence. It makes it really interesting. The doctor scrambles over a dune and loses his footing, tumbling down the other side to the ground below. Again, let's just throw Peter Davison off the side of a, of a, of a sand dune. What could, what could go wrong? Well, not what could go wrong, but, you know, because he's really supposed to suffer this episode. Relper and the other dude reach the top of the dune and are aiming their guns at the doctor to kill him. The doctor looks at Krelper for a moment and then just looks at the camera and he, Davison does a really great job here of just for a, a split second, he really honestly just gives up as the doctor. He apologizes to Perry that he just can't make it. I mean, it is, it's heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching. Suddenly, a burst of mud comes out of the ground near Krauper. I mean, you knew, you probably knew, could figure that it was coming. Krauper calls out mud burst, and he and the other dude leave to get back to their ship. The doctor crawls to his feet while some more explosions pop off nearby. I mean, you're supposed to think that they're mud bursts, but you can see that they're definitely explosives. I mean, you can see the fire and, and you know, the red explosions, but who cares? It's a really great effect. It doesn't take away from the scene at all. And I'm not saying that ironically, or, yeah, sarcastically, not ironically. I'm not saying that sarcastically. It is a really great effect. The doctor glances towards the direction of the TARDIS. Remember, he was going to get some oxygen cylinders, but then realizes that there's just not enough time. And he keeps running, and then he keeps running back into the caves. Back at Jex's lair, the army is pinned down behind some rocks by the androids. They feel and hear the rumbling of the mud bursts, and the general realizes there's no way back. He orders them to keep advancing. Jack is inside the lair and starting to panic. He's looking at his controls, realizing that the army is soon going to overrun him. He tries to call some of his other androids back to the base to help out, but realizes that they're already dead. Perry wakes up again at the sound of the mud bursts, and Jack tells her that he might be able to repair one or two androids to hold off the general just a little bit longer, long enough for the incoming mud bursts to take care of the army. He grabs a gun hanging on the wall and runs out of the lair. While he's taking a look at one of the androids, Chelek spots him and demands he surrender. Jack responds by firing back at him. He runs away with the general giving close chase. Back on the ship, Krelper and the other dude come running back into the cabin to find Stotts and Morgus sitting there. Morgus isn't pleased at all to hear that the doctor is still alive, and he wants to talk to Stotts alone. Krelper and the other dude head through the inner cabin door. Morgus admits to Stotts that he's murdered the president, but he's not going to return until he empties out all of the Spetrox from Jex's lair. Stotts sort of knows the way. Morgus tells Stotts that just before he left, the general told him that he was going to be attacking Jack's base. In the confusion, they can slip in and out before the main mud burst. Morgus proposes a deal, a 50-50 split that they share between them. Basically between Morgus and Stotts and the men. Stotts agrees to the offer. The doctor is making his way through the caves when there's a loud bang behind him. He scrambles up on a big rock just as a river of mud rockets down the cave below him. It's a really cool effect. Jack bursts through the door of his lair with the general close behind him. 
Jet grabs Perry and tries to protect her while the general is crawling after him. There's a struggle between the two of them, and the general manages to peel off Jack's hood, which reveals a hideously deformed face. While he's distracted by that, Jack manages to push him outside the lair door and closes it up. The general screams as he turns around to see a wave of hot mud hitting him. Inside the lair, Jack and Perry are on the ground trying to catch their breath. Perry screams at Jack's face, which causes him to crawl under a nearby desk, screaming like a wounded animal. Morgus opens a Skype to Crowtrimmon and notices that she's sitting in his seat. She reveals that he's finished, and tells him that there's a warrant out for his arrest, with 17 charges including the murder of the president, treason, embezzlement, and the accident at the North Call Mine, all due to a witness coming forward. He wants to know who's betrayed him, and is genuinely shocked when she reveals that she's the one that's turned him in. While Morgus is sitting with his mouth open, Crow Timon proudly declares herself as the chairman and chief director of the Sirius conglomerate. Behind a shocked Morgus, Stotts just gives out a big laugh. Then Crow Timon hangs up the call. Morgus still wants the Spetrox, but Krauper and the other dude refuse, and are just happy with the two kilos that they already have. Stotts agrees with Morgus, as he has a score to settle with Jack. They leave the shuttle and Stotts is waving goodbye to Krelper, and then comes back. Basically, Stotts disappears around the corner, uh, which causes Krelper and the other dude to kind of lower their guns in, you know, as they're distracted. And then Stotts comes back in and shoots both of them dead. The doctor stumbles his way past some of the dead androids towards Jek's lair. Meanwhile, at the entrance to the cave, Morgus and Stotts stop for a bit. Stotts wants to renegotiate the terms of their deal. They're now just two men with guns. Morgus is horrified at being compared to Stotts. His bloodline goes back as far as the original colonists of Androzani. But Stotts demands an even 50-50 split, which Morgus agrees to. Through clenched teeth. Jack is carrying a really sick Perry in his arms while trying to console both of them. He just keeps repeating over and over that she's so very beautiful. You can now see some major sores all over her legs and her breathing is very raspy. The doctor makes it through the door asking Jack how she's doing. He gently takes Perry from Jack and puts her down on a nearby bench. He waves the celery stick that's been in his jacket since Castrovalva, urging Perry to wake up. She briefly regains consciousness, but then passes out. The doctor, the doctor drags Jack to his screens to ask him to show him where he can find the queen bats for their milk. Jack points to one of the screens, but warns the doctor that he won't make it. There's no oxygen down there. Jack scrambles around and manages to find an old oxygen cylinder that's half full. He gives it to the doctor, wishing him good luck. Jack wishes... The doctor leaves, telling Jack to keep Perry cool as he can. Jack switches on some power equipment with the, which basically looks like it just cools down water to, that Jack can use on Perry's forehead. Stotts and Morgus are slowly making their way through the caves while stepping over the bodies of the fallen soldiers and androids. Jack is keeping a cool cloth on Perry's forehead, which is barely helping. Meanwhile, the doctor is making his way downwards through the cave system. Stotts is telling Morgus to hurry up when they both suddenly hear the noise of the machinery coming from Jex's lair. They both head towards it. The doctor is crawling downwards while we hear Jack repeating well, the doctor is crawling downwards while we hear Jack's voice repeating over and over that Perry is dying. He finally finds a queen bat hanging upside down, and he takes a vial out of his jacket for the milk. He finishes and is starting to make his way back up using the last of Jack's oxygen canister. Jack is trying to comfort Perry when Morgus and Stotts burst into the lair demanding Jack surrender his Spetrox. Jack loses it and takes off his hood to reveal his face to Morgus who recoils in shock. In the confusion, Jack manages to knock over Stotts 
and gets his hands around Morgus's neck to try to choke him. They both move through the lair as Jack gets Morgus closer and closer to some laser equipment. Stotts manages to shoot Jack with a couple of bullets, but then Not Salatine appears behind Stotts and kills him with his own gun. Jack manages to force Morgus's head into the equipment, which kills him. The equipment catches fire, and a dying Jack falls into the arms of Not Salatine. The doctor stumbles into the room and scoops up Perry, running out again. He makes it back to the surface, carrying Perry, as mud bursts are exploding everywhere. He gets back to the TARDIS, and nearly drops the vial of Queen Bat Milk while getting the TARDIS key out. I, I think you're supposed to get it that some of it does leak out of the, out of the vial, uh, but he manages to pick it up, um, reserving as much as he can. He makes it inside and dematerializes the TARDIS just as more mud explodes. He grabs Perry's head and gives her the, red, the, the entire milk that's in the vial. It's really not all that much, basically one gulp. Leaving none for himself, he wonders if he's dead for good this time, and he collapses on the ground. A few moments later, Perry regains full consciousness and asks him what's going on. The doctor is pleased that the professor knew his stuff. Perry looks around for the bat milk, but the doctor tells her that it's gone. There was only enough for her. Perry starts to cry while the doctor says goodbye, not knowing what's going to happen. It feels different this time. We then see another montage, uh, basically back in the end, actually the end of all of them. So the end of uh, Patrick Troughton's, so the, or the end of John Pertwee's in The Planet of the Spiders, and at the end of um, Patrick Troughton's st story, if I remember right. Uh, we get a montage of faces swirling around the scene. Oh yeah, at the end of War Games. Yep, definitely. There's a, a swirling montage of faces uh, going around the Doctor as you know, um, old companions and friends of the Doctor throughout the Doctor's adventures are all trying to encourage the Doctor to stay alive. Suddenly, the big face suddenly a face of the master appears and just gets bigger and bigger and bigger taking over the whole screen he's just laughing and ridiculing the doctor ordering him to die and in a weird way the doctor is encouraged is more encouraged by that not wanting the master to have the last laugh there's a big burst of light and the doctor sits up now looking like colin baker He's staring at his hands for a few moments while a stammering Perry asks him what's going on. He calls her egotistical and tells her that it's change. And not a moment too soon. Woo! There we go. That is the end of the Caves of Androzani. As before, let's go through the episode numbers. Episode 1 pulled in 6.9 million. Episode 2, 6.6 .6 million. Episode 3, we jump to 7.8 million, and Episode 4 stays at that 7.8 million mark. As I mentioned, Christopher Gable playing Shara's Jack, John Normington playing Morgus, Maurice Roves playing Stotts, and Martin Cochran playing General Chillak. Maybe some people might not be too impressed with this story, uh, just because um, some people have the opinion that it's overblown because the it really stands out as a better story than most of the final season of Peter Davison. But I, it's more than that to me. It's definitely a tremendous story. It really stands out from beginning to end by Robert Holmes. The tight direction and editing just really help elevate this story as well. From the beginning, from the very beginning, with the music and the lighting, the whole story is, is just covered with so much mood uh, with with these dark and barely lit caves. And really, um, we're only talking about, I mean, this is Doctor Who with, remember, they barely have a budget. So it's like almost the same cave set piece that they're filming all of these scenes in as, you know, they're just using different angles, different uh, different tricks to make it look like an entire cave system but it's probably just the same set of, um, you know, cave pieces. 
the fan the fantastic fades between Morgus and Jerez Jack, a yin and a yang that are bitter rivals until the very end. Morgus, who's the, the peak of Androzani power, he's head of the largest conglomeration on the planet and even more powerful than the president. And then there's Sheriff Jack, who's a twisted and disfigured individual who's in the deep depths of the caves, surrounded by androids, who are beings that aren't even human. Then we've got a tired and disillusioned general in the middle trying to finish a long campaign. I would say about the only stain on this story is the cave monster. About all I can think of is that they only needed it for the cliffhanger of episode 2, but it was definitely the weakest cliffhanger out of the three of them. They could have really dropped it from the story, or maybe they leave it as lines of dialogue, but but we never see. Um, there's a lot to be said for uh, tell but don't show. At any rate, like I've already stated, it's a definite 5 out of 5 bags of Spetrox for me. Even if you're not currently subscribing to BritBox, you should be able to find the DVD release at your local library, hopefully. At least in Canada, it's in it's in my local library. It's worth it. In fact, you could even subscribe to BritBox for like a free trial. I think you get a free 30 days. So sign up, get the free trial, and watch this one right away. It's worth it. Unfortunately, my friends, this now means that we're about to experience Colin Baker's first story as the Doctor in The Twin Dilemma. Oh my. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Summons from Gallifrey. Leave a rating and review wherever you get this podcast from. It really helps the algorithm push the show out to more people. I'm your host, Eric Izwa, and I'll see you next time. Peace.